Tom Rayner, who was the longtime president of Lifeway Resources and Lifeway Research, uh, he conducted a survey at one point about church fights, conflicts, and splits. And what I'm about to read to you, unfortunately, are real and the most unusual and absurd survey results he uncovered. So he, the, the most absurd and unusual 25 that he received back. Here we go. Here's the first. One church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Big argument broke out about that. I don't even think Tyson and I can grow beards, so we're good on that one. The second one was fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. That was what the church fight was about. Sort of real opposite ends of the spectrum there. Third one was a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. I can't find that one another verse, you know? Fight one another in the parking lot. Four, there was a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. My own humble suggestion would be if you want women to attend your church, you should probably go for it, but big argument about that. Fifth, uh, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. The sixth one is a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. At that church, this, this argument will forever be known as the cabinet meeting. Seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I'd recommend the no graven images commandment, but that's just me. Uh, eight, a petition to have all church staff clean shaven. Petition went out over that in a particular church. I would say that's the fastest way to ensure you have no hipsters on staff. Maybe not a bad idea. Nine, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. Honestly, on this one, I'm actually, a, I'm actually a little fired up about this. What is it with these worship leaders and no shoes? Uh, ten, the tenth one was a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. 11, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. It's actually nice to see that they sidestepped the whole wine debate entirely there. 12, business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Thirteenth, argument over what type of green beans the church should serve. Fourteen, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and members left the church in the latter example. Real light roast people there. Uh, Fifteen, major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. 
this whole potluck thing supposed to stop it at th this new generation. I don't know why they were even using it. 16, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Not sure if that was more a dietary or theological motivation there, but personally I think they could have balanced it out with angel food cake at the end. Would have been fine. 17, an argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. 18, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. Right, the concept of luck contradicts the eh, sovereignty of God. Anyways, 19, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. Meanwhile, they were probably all just enjoying vanilla syrup in the privacy of their own homes. Uh, 20, an argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. 21, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Man, that sucks. 22, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. Funnily enough, we've actually had this discussion here at Central, and thankfully, though, no arguments ensued. 23, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts, since black is the color of the devil. Red shirts, strangely, totally fine. 24, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. I'm guessing this is the same church that gets newcomers to stand up and give a speech, you know, that kind of place. 25, an argument over whether the fake dusty plant should be removed from the podium. In my opinion, just add a little cran grape juice to those things and they'll spruce right up. Listen, I've got two quick things to say about this list. One, man, I'm so thankful for Central as I read a list like that. So thankful for this church. We've talked about things like who, has, who should have access to the copy machine and stuff like that, but never arguments ensuing about such things. I praise God for that. Second, this list is pretty funny, but it's really sad because they're distractions that move the focus away from the calling of the church. The calling of the church, by the way, is to fulfill the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's why we exist. I say all this because the potential for distraction leading to division and even the end of the church in its infancy is at stake in our text today. Here's the outline we're looking at as we study Acts 6, 1 to 7. It's very wordy this week, but, but we'll break it down, okay? Here's the outline. First, festering distractions kill mission and lead to the death of churches. Two, churches on mission are full of engaged servant ministers. And three, Spirit-filled word and deed ministry demonstrates the truth and power of the gospel. So let's look at the first. Festering distractions kill mission and lead to the death of churches. Now look at the text with me. Our text begins and ends with growth. Verse 1. Now in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. Now down to verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. But something happens between verse one and verse seven that threatens the preservation of the early church. It's actually the third tactic the devil has used in recent chapters to try and destroy 
the church. First, in chapters four and five, he used persecution to try on multiple attempts to suppress it by force. Persecution. Second, in chapter five, he used corruption. The corruption of Ananias and Sapphira and their deceitful hypocrisy, right? They were trying to appear more spiritual and pious than they were. Now, from within the church itself, he's using distraction. Just in the first few chapters of Acts, the devil has used, in trying to suppress the church, kill the church. He's tried persecution, corruption, and now his tactic is distraction. Okay, so here's the scenario. With the rapid growth of the church, they were experiencing, uh, no wonder they were experiencing logistical and administrative issues. They're starting to come up at this point. And the one that Luke notes specifically is that Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and potentially other basic necessities. I'll explain that in a little bit more. But first of all, the Old Testament and New Testament repetitively speak about caring for widows. And clearly, the Christian church, from its very inception, sought to meet their needs. Hellenists is a reference to Greek-speaking Jews. It's not a derogatory term. You Hellenist. No, it's, it, it's Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, so here, here's... here's how this scenario would have played out. The roads that Rome had built throughout the Middle East uh, in years prior to this had allowed Jews to settle in other areas of the Greco-Roman world for, for, for business reasons, monetary reasons, or whatever. But after however many generations, these Greek-speaking Jews, right, who, who, who lived in the Greco-Roman world and were raised there, spoke the language and all of that, returned to Jerusalem at some point in time their holy city, right? Oftentimes because they wanted to be buried there. And since men often pass away before their wives, it left a number of widows who needed assistance. Now the circumstance here likely is not only language, but behavior and customs. All of these were different for them as well. These would be classical distinctions of people. And so the complaint wasn't about something inconsequential. We need, we need to understand that. Right? It's not about beard length. Right? A Jonathan Newfeld length beard is okay, but a Duck Dynasty length beard is not. Like, it's not about something inconsequential. Like, care for widows and, and equal care, especially when it seems that there are these dividing lines being drawn that shouldn't be in the people of God. It's a significant issue. Now, we don't exactly know to what extent the Hellenist widows were being neglected, but that word neglect means given little or no attention. They were overlooked, neglected, or disregarded. So sorting this matter out matters. Sorting this out matters. Sorting out the festering distraction and the grumbling going on about it and the lines of division between Hellenists and Hebrews matters. The gospel breaks down dividing walls. That's what it does. And this scenario had all the potential in the world to build those dividing walls right back up again. Verse 1 says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. This word complaint literally means grumbling or they muttered in a low, indistinct tone. So, so we're seeing that the issue is a, is a pretty big deal. 
that may or may not be the result of some sinful prejudice. And we also see that it's starting to fester among those feeling slighted in a sinful way. Look, Philippians 2, 14 and 15 say, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent and shine as lights in the world. This festering distraction is the devil's latest attempt to torpedo the church. So how should we approach disagreements that can, that can become distractions and lead to divisions? This isn't an exhaustive list, but, but here's a few. First, ask yourself if this is a me or a them issue. Are, are you holding that individual to a higher, or group of people, to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Is it a you issue or a them issue? And, and, and the first thing we should do is, is bring it to God in prayer and reflect do some introspection, seek God, ask questions like what's going on in my heart. Second, we should assume the best, not the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Philippians 2, 3 shares the, the model for, for, our, for our posture when Paul said, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Right? Assume the best in that brother or sister, that their intentions are right, that they are pure, that they are godly individuals. Assume the best, not the worst of them. When we assume the worst, it's easy to find fault. Third, follow the template for dealing with misunderstandings and conflict and being sinned against that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18. He gave us a, 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 a template for responding to those things. And essentially, we're called to go to that individual directly without involving others in order to keep rumors and misunderstandings or conflicts from spreading. Have an issue with somebody, go to that person. And if he listens, it says, you have gained your brother. But if that doesn't lead to clarity and restoration, bring in two or three other godly individuals, Jesus says, who can provide wisdom and insight into the situation. And if that doesn't lead to clarity and unity, it typically makes its way to the leaders in the church to decide how to handle it. So, so grumbling, which is a sin, usually leads to slandering someone, which is a sin, right? Talking amongst ourselves, but not going to the person and ignores the biblical guidelines given to us by Jesus for restoration, which is a sin. And every time that happens, it literally jeopardizes the health and future of that local church. You can be right, in other words, and go about it in the wrong way. There is a right way and a wrong way to address wrongs. Are you a grumbler? Are you slandering somebody these days? Look, our, our, our COVID moment makes the church ripe for division. Don't do it. Don't fall for that scheme of the devil. This text reminds us that there are legitimate concerns that need to be addressed, but let's make sure we are not those who perpetuate festering distractions from the mission of the church. 
Next, let's look at how the church addresses this concern and potentially divisive distraction without losing sight of their calling. Second, churches on mission are full of engaged servant ministers. Look, the apostles are actually put in a tricky spot here in this text. They, they rightly feel, we see it in verses two and four, the conviction to give themselves to preaching and prayer. But by ignoring this festering distraction, they run the risk of having no one left to preach to. So what we see in verse two is that they call a congregational meeting. That's what they do. And give direction on how to address the issue. Let's pick it up in verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, the gathered church. And they chose seven men whose names I don't feel like butchering right now, but, but two that I should make you especially aware of are Stephen and Philip, because they will both come up later in the book of Acts. The other five are not mentioned again. And then verse six, it says, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Here's what happens. The apostles invite the congregation to choose seven men who meet the following qualifications. They have a good reputation. Literally, they are testified to. They're, they're affirmed favorably by firsthand authentication. Second, they are full of the spirit and of wisdom, meaning their lives are directed by God's spirit, so they're spiritually sensitive and able to make good judgments. They're spiritually mature. This is to hand out food, distribute food to widows, and yet they are to be godly and trustworthy and spirit-filled and wise. And this plan that they make pleases everybody. So the church choose seven who meet those qualifications. And then the apostles commission them for this service, the service of daily distribution. I, I, I want to make a couple points of application for us about this. Here's the first. Well, God calls different Christians to different areas of ministry, he calls all his people to ministry. Listen, I want to show you something. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word distribution in the original language is diakonia, which means service or ministry. Then Verse two, it says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word in the original language is diakonau. I've taken just enough Greek to, to butcher words. And then in verse four, it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, diakonia, of the word. So the apostles are saying, we shouldn't neglect our service for this service. But, but what we should all see is that it's all service and everyone is a servant. We need to understand that as followers of Jesus and members of the church. Everyone's a servant. And that's because we follow a servant king, 
Jesus, who said in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, diakonau. Same word as used in verses one and two. See, the reality is that every Christian is called into the ministry, not just pastors. It's just when pastors are called into the ministry, there's poor pay and lots of emails waiting for them. That's just a joke. Everybody is called into the ministry, not just pastors. The question is simply, what gifts have you been given and in what area are you being called to use them? Look, it's, been, it's actually been fun. I don't know if that's the right word quite, but it's been fun to watch our church mobilize for ministry in this season. Like, you gotta know, I long for the day when this place is filled and we are worshiping Jesus and communing together. I long for that day. But in the meantime, it's fun to watch our church mobilize for ministry in this season. Question for you at home, are you using the gifts God's given you to build up the church and engage in the mission of God. The second thing I wanna draw out about this is that the most helpful thing that pastors can do for the church is to prayerfully teach them the word. I want you to understand that everybody's called to ministry, and I also want you to understand that the most helpful thing that pastors can do for the church is to prayerfully teach them the word. Look, I I know this text is referring to the apostles, but I'm applying it here to those in the local church tasked with the ministry of the word. So their fundamental task is the proclamation of the gospel. Maybe you've heard this axiom before. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now the whole church is meant to keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's proclaiming it. It's our mission. It's our call to go about making disciples. The great commission. That's our purpose. And the role of the preacher, the role of the pastor is to keep making the main thing the main thing. See, neither ministry of the word or mercy ministry are superior to the other Both require spirit-filled people using their gifts. The point isn't that the apostles are above serving meals. The point is that their service to Jesus and the church is through the ministry of the word, while the service of others is through the ministry they've been called to. The principle here is that the preachers aren't too busy to serve, but aren't to be preoccupied serving in the wrong ministry. Sometimes that happens comes from pressure from the church to be the one who does the ministry. Sometimes it comes from the pastor themselves who has a I've got to do it all myself mentality and both are wrong. I've seen this with so many pastors. I'll meet with pastors, we'll be hanging out somewhere. There's, There's things we go to where a bunch of pastors are in the room and a lot of times the conversation goes to what's going on in our churches and what our role looks like and the question gets asked a lot. It's like, well, how many hours do you spend prepping your sermon? And I typically spend about 15 and I usually wish that I had spent 20. (laughs) And I'm surprised at how often the reaction from the other preachers is like, what? 15 hours? I... I don't have more than enough time to do five or six. That's all the time I have to give to preach. I have so many other things I have to do. I have all these meetings and I have all these administrative tasks and I'm supposed to do these visitations. 
Now, pastor, you're, you're choosing your priorities when you only have five or six hours to give to the sermon. You are choosing your priorities, and un- unfortunately, you're, you're choosing unfaithfully. The role of leaders in the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and present them mature in Christ through the ministry of the word. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity in Christ come through, comes through the proper handling and ministry of the word. Here's what that means. We believe so much in the power of the word that we know that if we stick close to the text of scripture, like the one we have today, and expound and apply the meaning of the text and present the gospel, God's word will do its work and our people will grow in biblical literacy with the goal, aim of maturing disciples and that will be accomplished. Paul said to his young protege, Timothy, Young pastor in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Goes on to say, by doing so, you will fulfill your ministry. That's what faithful word ministry looks like. See, when the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, I think the prayer being referred to here is the pattern of ministry-related prayer that has absolute reliance on God to lead, provide for, protect, and further the effect and spread of the gospel. Preaching isn't merely some intellectual exercise. I have the information, and now I will speak it. No, it's more than that. It's, it's bathing the whole process in prayer of preparation and then bringing it before the people to proclaim it. It's the heralding of the gospel in such a way that what is said is true, but at the same time is also carried along by the wind of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the context of their devotion to prayer. It was this word, prayer connected word ministry. Word ministry bathed in prayer, knowing that our reliance is on God to move in hearts. All of this takes time. All of this takes time. At least 15 hours of my week. And I've got to encourage you, Central, you expect this from me. And I love that. You you love the word of God, the preaching of God's word, and you settle for nothing less than prayerfully prepared preachers handling the word and proclaiming the gospel in the pulpit. I love that. And I could tell you a bunch of stories about how Central prioritizes that. I'll just give you one really quick, and his name's Ron. He's our executive pastor. I work closely with him, and when he came on, he made it his mission for me to be in the church office less because that would mean I am freed up to be in God's word and prayer more. I love that about him, and I love that about our church. So while God calls different Christians to different areas of ministry, he calls all his people to ministry. Not only that, the most helpful thing that pastors can do for the church is to prayerfully teach them the word. Why? Those things together, churches on mission are full of engaged servant ministers and we're all ministers and we're all to be faithful where we've been called out utilizing the gifts that God has given us and empowers us to use.
Third, spirit-filled word and deed ministry demonstrates the truth and power of the gospel. Um, So deacon ministry is one of two offices in the church. There's the office of elder, which we've talked about earlier in the service, and the office of deacon. This text is widely seen as the beginnings of the office of deacon in the church. Out of necessity, there are all these practical needs in the life of the church, in the body of the church, and they matter, and they need to be met, but not met by the ones who are meant to have another purpose, elder ministry, and so on. So what we should understand is that one, every gift used in service to God honors Jesus and builds up the church, and two, practical service in the church and community are vital and magnify Christ and the gospel. Just just so you're aware, we officially instituted the office of deacon at Central earlier this fall and, and, and tried our best to communicate well about that. But if you weren't aware of that, you can go on our website to watch a video and read some documents about how that functions in our church. And, and we're really excited to see this biblical office grow and grow and flourish more and more in our church in the years to come. See, when a church is on mission through fully engaged servant ministers, a few things happen. The people are fed with biblical truth and they're matured through it. The church family is cared for, spiritual, emotional, material, needs met. And, and the broader community gets blessed by that church. A church activating their wealth of gifts in word and deed ministries inside and outside of the church demonstrates the truth and power of the gospel. Just a few ways that's lived out. I'm just gonna try and paint a little picture here of how that's lived out in the life of Central. Heather and Leona spearhead our Kent Elementary School outreach in Agassiz. This consists of coordinating a team from Central who make breakfast and lunch for over 20 kids every weekday. And Sonia and Kathy follow that up and read to students there as part of the early readers program. Ken facilitates a breakfast every Monday at Quill Secondary School. Coordinates a crew who cook, There's some who go and serve the meal and others who come in later on into our church building to clean up the kitchen after. There's Martha who coordinates two weekly prayer teams and calls. She calls, cares for, and disciples a number of women, often in circumstances where mercy ministry is needed. There's Gord who mows the lawn at multiple campuses. There's Mike who keeps our facilities up to speed and coordinates that. When we meet in person, don't you miss meeting in person? When we would meet in person and when we will meet in person, Kate coordinates five setup teams in Agassiz. And Justine and Justin coordinate three setup teams in Promontory. So that in those spaces, in those community spaces, we can host church gatherings that gather the church and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. There's Laura who serves as our count team lead and coordinates a team who serve alongside her on Mondays and Thursdays. There's Lynn, Walt, and Jean, who in normal times do regular visits to our seniors in care homes. And when they show up in the room, Central shows up in the room and loves them and blesses them and prays for them and encourages them. We have 60 life group leaders who gather, care for, foster community, disciple, and represent Central to their groups and love them well. There's 40 youth leaders who invest in leading students to be committed disciples of Jesus. 
There are nine, presently nine kids ministry teachers in addition to pastors Chris and Crystal who participate in communicating God's word and the centrality of the gospel to the children of our church through our online kids services. And in normal times, they coordinate over a hundred kids ministry volunteers across our campuses. There are all of you who quietly serve in a myriad of ways in the community and put the gospel on display there. This is how the church is intended to be. So fixated on gospel ministry that to let festering distractions take over just doesn't make sense. Here's our gospel reality. No one has gone further than Jesus was willing to go to serve us so that we could be united with him. Meaning Jesus is so worthy of our unity and our service as his church. I don't know if you knew this, but there's never been a movement like Christianity in the history of humanity. There's never been a movement like Christianity in the history of humanity. When it comes to hospitals and palliative care, care for the poor, soup kitchens and shelters, leading the best sorts of social change for the common good, education, justice, and mercy, even music, art, and architecture. Christians have been found using their gifts to glorify God and serve as a witness to the world of the power and truthfulness of the gospel. See, when you go make that visit, or when you advocate for the cause of the marginalized, or when you serve the practical and spiritual needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, or when you minister the word to the body of Christ, you're participating in a larger testimony of the church that the gospel is true and that Jesus reigns. It's no wonder that the word of God, in verse seven it tells us, It's no wonder that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly and those from outside of the movement of the Christian church were struck by its spiritual and social flourishing and drawn in and drawn to Jesus. They didn't let an ethnic division break them. Instead, they leaned into the gospel and made sure they kept making the main thing the main thing. And dividing walls came down and it put the gospel on display. Listen, festering distractions kill mission and lead to the death of churches. On the other hand, churches on mission are full of engaged servant ministers. And when that's the case, spirit-filled word and deed ministry demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel. What role will you play in this season of the church? Let me pray for us. Jesus, you reign. And this is your church. Lord, may we not be found disparaging it. May we be found investing in it. Lord, I thank you for for such helpful principles here that help guide us in the midst of distractions, issues, and remind us also of how to keep the main thing the main thing, to be about gospel ministry shoulder to shoulder for your glory and the good of those around us. Jesus, would you continue to build your church? In Jesus' name, amen.